the study that we're doing on the Christian worldview is so, so very important uh, for us as a church. Um, Dr. David Noble, as I think many of you, and I don't know if he made it available when he was here, but uh, he wrote the book, Understanding the Times. This happens to be an abridged version of that, which is kind of nice, because this is like the, the cliff notes of it. And there, I don't know if there are cliff notes of the abridged version, but this is about as succinct as it can get. And, and he has made this available before where he gave copies to anyone who promised to read it. How many of you have a copy of Understanding the Times, either the other version or this? Hold your hand up in your household if you have it. But, you know, I'd really like to get it and have it available so that you can see it as well. But really what this is and what directs it or, or guides it is... David Noble and some of ministries exist to equip young people, especially going off to college. At least that's how it began. They're now recognizing they need to start even with the younger children before they lose them. But before they go off to college, they want to equip them to understand the biblical, the secular humanist, the Marxist worldview. Because they recognize that when they go off to their schools, they are not being indoctrinated with a biblical Christian worldview. Instead, they're being indoctrinated with uh, the humanist worldview or a Marxist worldview. Or they're also being influenced by a... Uh, by a uh, New Age worldview, and even more now is getting into a po- postmodern view. Well, what we are doing is we are following this chart that has been handed to you, and some of you had a different version of it, but we are going through this chart to understand uh, the worldview of each of these particular systems or religious beliefs. And uh, we know that they're religious because they all have a theology, a doctrine about God, and what happens is they affect every other area. You see, Many Christians think that Christianity is what you do on Sunday for a few hours at church, but it has no effect on the rest of your life. And so what happens is we become indoctrinated and adapt a humanistic psychology or view of psychology, or we adapt within our life a humanistic view of sociology and the family and government or whatever it might be. And we think that, well, the Bible hasn't spoken to any of these things. The Bible only speaks about God and our relationship with Him. Well, the Bible speaks to all of these areas. And so there is a biblical view of biology, psychology, law, politics. There is a biblical approach to all of those. And what we need to do is we need to be comparing what we're thinking with what the Bible is saying. Because what affects our thinking If you were to look at the major news media resources, they are dominated by those who are coming from a secular humanist worldview. And they may not intentionally be promoting their religious system or their beliefs, but because they believe it, because that's what they've grown up with, that's what's affecting them. Let me give a little background. We know that a biblical worldview definitely dominated America, at least from the early days. Our founding fathers... Uh, established a system of law that was built upon biblical principles. They established a government that was based upon biblical principles. They had a a system of economics that was based upon biblical principle. And and their view of the family and their respect for family and for government all came from their biblical principles. So that, even in America, even if you weren't a believer, even if you weren't a full-fledged Christian, people in America knew more about the Bible back 150 years ago than even Christians know today. You would go to schools and there was prayer in schools, there was teaching of the Bible in schools. Even if you were learning to read, you would learn to read with scripture verses. 
uh, A is for Adam, and then you know you, you that's how instead of A is for Apple, you have A is for Adam, and then there'd be Scripture that goes along with it. And so the Bible was predominant. By the way, that is now happening in Uganda. Uganda cannot believe the people of Uganda cannot believe that America doesn't allow the preaching of the gospel into a school environment. When I told them that we're not even allowed to read the Bible, then they couldn't believe it. They said, hey, we teach the Bible in all of our schools. We have Bible classes. Every school has a Bible class. And I said, well, we're not even allowed to teach creation. You know, I mean, we're not allowed to pray in school. We can't post the Ten Commandments. They can't believe where we have come. Because early we may have been influenced by biblical Christianity, but there definitely was... Uh, there was an effort to promote a different religious worldview and that would be the secular or the secular humanist worldview. We know that it was intentional because if you were to go back to the 1930s and perhaps even earlier, uh, John Dewey and others who wrote the Humanist Manifesto said that the main way that we can promote these ideas and our religious view and, and we know it was religious because they said they claimed to be atheists and we are our own saviors and so I mean they, they came right out and talked about their religion uh, they said that the best way to promote this is through the educational system and so John Dewey who if, if I'm remembering correctly he was the president of of the uh, teachers college at um, oh man what's the big university in New York teachers school uh I just can't, I just forgot it. I'm sorry, but anyway, he said, "Let's let's train teachers who will become the evangelists who will go out and promote this idea." And so then they were the ones who were teaching the next teachers and the teachers, and eventually, within one generation, they had successfully secularized America to the point where the Supreme Court soon was instead of thinking biblically and being governed by biblical principles, they are being governed by secular principles, secular humanistic principles. To where they don't allow prayer in school. They don't allow reading of the Bible in school. They make a, a, a decision regarding the value of human life in 1971. Roe v. Wade. Instead of taking a biblical approach to it, they're now governed more by uh, secular ethics, secular law. And they end up... Where we are right now is that we are a nation who has forgotten God. And the Bible says that when a nation or people have forgotten God, there are other consequences that come. Understanding all of this and understanding what it is that we are needing, what we are desperately needing within our day is we are needing Christians who will know and live and proclaim God's truth. We don't just need pastors who will proclaim God's truth, but we need lawyers who will know what God's word has to say about law and they'll put it into practice there in the field of law. We need politicians and policy makers who would know what the Word of God says and defend and stand for scriptures in that area. We need teachers who would do the same. We need businessmen who would bring that. We need, you can just go on and on. Uh, and that's really what we're talking about. And so when we talk about as a church, our vision is to equip believers to know, live, and defend God's truth. It's coming from this standpoint. We want to preach and teach the Word of God so that people will understand that the Bible relates to every part of their life. And now those people will be equipped to go out and to be scientists who are Christians, truly biblical Christian scientists. Their faith isn't separated from everything else that they do. Are you kind of following the idea, how it works? If you look at this uh, chart, and I have it up here, and I know that that's very difficult to see because of the coloring and everything else. As a matter of fact, uh, 
Jeremy, if you don't mind, turn off that, just the first light on this way, this direction, and you'll be able to see it just a little bit better. But that chart is what you already have right here in front of you. And you'll notice that there's a secular humanist worldview, a Marxist worldview, a cosmic humanist, or you might put the word New Age worldview, and then there's the biblical Christian worldview. And all of these have a worldview of these ten different disciplines. And the disciplines would include not only theology, which they studied last week, but also philosophy, which we'll get into today, ethics, biology, and throughout the rest of the summer, we're going to go right down this and understand each of these and understand not only what is happening in the world around us, but also understand what the Bible has to say and how we ought to live according to it. And so really, in the one hour that we have a week in the Sunday school class, the intention is to kind of whet your appetite so that you can continue to study. When my appetite was whetted for this, I, began, I, I asked a friend of mine, I said, hey, I want us to read the uh, four chapters of the book that relate to theology. We'll get together. We're going to discuss it. So once a week, we would do that. And uh, that was in the thick book. This would be a whole lot easier. Because I said to him, I said, you know what? Having grown up within my culture, even though I'm a pastor's kid, even though I'm a Christian, even though I've gone to a seminary, I said, having grown up within my culture, there are plenty of ideas that I've adopted and that I have embraced in my life. I'm not even aware of it, but maybe humanistic or they may be new age. And I want to compare what it is that I'm believing with what the Word of God says. And that truly is uh, that's discipleship. That's why God has given to us His Word. And so hopefully there will be small groups or partnerships or your own personal reading to understand these things a little bit better and take them further. And we do have the resources right where we are in Colorado Springs next to Manitou Springs. We have the resources that will help us if you want to go even further. There are, there are uh, adult conferences. There are other books that can be read. And hopefully this will launch you into recognizing that, wow, you know what? What we need in our day, are we need, we need Ezra-like people who will, it says in Ezra 7.10, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. That was, that's what we need. Ezra-like people who will seek it out themselves so that they can know it and understand it. They will live according to it, put it into practice in their own life before they try to change the culture around them, but then teach it to other people. And that's what's happening. Today, we are taking the second line. We are taking uh, philosophy. And as we study philosophy, there will definitely be a secular humanist form of philosophy. There will be a Marxist form. There will be... A new age, and then there will be the biblical Christian view of all of these. Now, the word philosophy is, is, comes from two Greek words, philos and sophia, or philea and sophia. The word sophia is wisdom, and so it's a love of wisdom. A love of wisdom is certainly something that we ought to have, shouldn't we? But it's also something we ought to be skeptical of if it's anything outside of God's wisdom. And I want to set the tone by, uh, by considering Jeremiah 9, verse 23. It says, Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. And he also says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. There are so many people that are pursuing wisdom or they're pursuing knowledge without the, uh, the grace of God or without the direction of God and that really becomes futility. Uh, at the same time, and well, let's talk about that futility. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 19 through 29 warns us that there is a wisdom that is from this world 
There is a love for wisdom. There is a philosophy that the rest of the world will have that when it is godless, it is also futile and it uh, is devastating, it's damaging. So 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 19, says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. When our students are leaving our homes and going off to Pikes Peak or any other university, and by the way, many times the university may call itself a Christian university, but just because they call themselves a Christian university doesn't mean that they're teaching the biblical Christian worldview. And when they're taking a philosophy class, rarely are they coming and seeking God's wisdom. Usually they're seeking the world's wisdom. And God has said he's going to destroy the wisdom of the human wise. He's going to bring to nothing the understanding of those that are prudent in this world's ways. Why? Because where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through wisdom, did not know God. In other words, the world is trying to know certain things, but their wisdom, their search, is not leading them to God. They don't know God through the same, or through the ways that they typically want to know certain things, whatever they want to know. So it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. So the point is is that God is going to humble all of the efforts of man in wisdom. Therefore, we ought to be be, um, guarded... Uh, and cynical about the philosophy of this world. When someone steps into a philosophy class, if, they, if their teacher is an atheist and an evolutionist or a, 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 a secular humanist in their thinking, then we ought to be skeptical of what they're teaching because their wisdom is really foolishness in God's eyes. So we ought to be skeptical, but... Just as we're skeptical about naturalism and dialectical materialism and non-naturalism, that doesn't mean that we're abandoning philosophy altogether. Because the love of wisdom is something that should drive Christians where we are going to God's source and we are pursuing the wisdom that He would give. Psalm 119. Please turn there. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 100. Tim, I think I'm going to have someone read this aloud. And for the benefit, because we are going to be putting this on a... Because we are putting this on CD and others will be listening to it from other sources. I'd like to have you read into this microphone so that we can get it. Tim will have it on. And if you'd be willing to read Psalm 119, uh, 97 through 100. Please raise your hand. I'll give you this and we'll have you read it. Someone close? Thank you. Yes. Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever more. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. Now that's good, isn't it? That says that there is a wisdom that comes from God and from His Word that makes us wiser than those who would teach us and the people that are respected as being wise around us. So while we reject the wisdom of this world, we should seek after and value and love the wisdom that is from God. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 11. I know that's an extended portion, but who'd be willing to read Proverbs 2, 1 through 11? Even before you get there, if someone would volunteer, I'll bring the microphone to you. Anyone? Great. Thank you. All right, go ahead. This is Don Brackett, for those of you who may not know him. Go ahead, Don. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you and understanding will watch over you. Very good. So there again, wisdom is... Desirable is something we should pursue. Go ahead and keep that back there. Actually, Jim Woolsey, will you take that and would you read this next portion? Proverbs 4, 5 through 7. There is a wisdom that we ought to love. And uh, that's what we're setting the groundwork for right now. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. Good. Once we begin by the fear of the Lord, then we are to acquire, we are to seek after. Even uh, as you seek after uh, a treasure, we are to get wisdom with all of our getting. That should be something that we go after. On the page that we handed out, and I believe uh, most of you have it, we have a, a discussion of philosophy. And here you have an overview that you're able to take home and, uh, and understand. There are some words that I'm going to use as we analyze each of these four um, kinds of philosophy or four approaches to philosophy that I think are, are difficult. If I'd had enough time, had I prepared, I would have loved to have these words up here so that you could actually see them on a PowerPoint. But instead, we're going to have to do the best with, with what we have right now. We're going to start with naturalism. Naturalism is the real definition or, or the, the best description of what secular humanist philosophy is. Philosophy often begins, as they are talking about a love of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, it involves uh, three different kind of steps. There is ontology, there is epistemology, there is cosmology. 
If you went to a college class, they're always going to include uh, their ontology. And the word ontology is really understanding the nature of being or what, what is reality? What is real? That's kind of what they're asking. What is the nature of being? What is real? For a naturalist, they are going to assume that reality is only matter. It's only that which is natural. Matter being uh, the things that you can touch, smell, taste. Uh, there is no supernatural. There wouldn't be a soul. There's only uh, you know, a, a human. There wouldn't be personality. So there's going to be an explanation rather than some sort of supernatural. Uh, there's no personality. There wouldn't, be a, uh, there wouldn't be a mind. There would only be a brain. And so really, your brain could be manipulated or you're going to deal with someone's behavior or you're going to deal with uh, the synapses and the chemical parts of the brain to treat it, but you can't really go into something that would be supernatural because there's no soul, there's no mind, there's nothing beyond matter. There's nothing beyond what is right there. And so their ontology is, what is reality? To them, reality is that which is uh, material. We live in a material world. We have a bunch of material girls out there too, but they're just filled up with materialism. That's the ontology. There's another part of philosophy, and that is epistemology. Epistemology is now the theory of knowledge. Based on, this is reality, how can you know reality? That's what epistemology is. And their epistemology is ultimately going to come down to, how is it that you know what is real? How do you know matter? Well, the, way that, the only way that you can know matter is through scientific uh, naturalism. And so through science, through observation, uh, you're going to be able, you can observe, you can measure, and through reason and through science, you're going to be able to come to know what is real and what is true. Does that, I mean, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If what is real is only matter, then the way to know what is real, to gain knowledge, is through science and through reason only. And so that's going to be their epistemology. Their cosmology is the origin of the earth. By cosmos, that's the world. They're now going to say, okay, if matter is what is real, if that's the essence of being, then how did this material world, this material universe, get here? And so their cosmology, when they study the origin of matter and they're looking at the structure of the world, they're going to have to come up with some natural explanation for how we got here. There is no supernatural explanation, so they've already discounted that. Since nature is all that exists, then there must be some natural explanation. And since none of us were here to see it begin, it's all going to be theory. And so we're going to come up with different theories that will tell us how we all got here. Now, with those three main areas, understand that naturalism stems from theology and it affects everything else. Because if, uh, if there is no God, then it makes sense that since there's no God, then the nature and material is all that you will see and all that you'll have around you. And uh, so you can see how the theology relates to philosophy. Philosophy relates to all the rest because, for instance, if there is no God... And if matter is all that exists, if, if naturalism is how we all got here, then is there ultimately an authority that tells us what is right and what is wrong? Of course there's not. And so since there's no authority that tells us right from wrong, then we're going to have an ethical relativism where right from wrong will change depending on you know, the, the makeup and the natural 
flow of things and how they get there. And so their relativism is going to flow from that. It's going to affect their view of biology. Because their biology, we're talking about the study or the source of life. If there is no God who is the source of life, and if nature is all that exists, then how did human life get here? How did, how did, well, they come up with evolution. That would be one theory. And I don't think you can limit it to that, because even if you disprove evolution, to a naturalist you've accomplished nothing. Because they're saying, well, maybe it's... I mean, if they're a naturalist and their bent is, there is no God, so we have to have a natu- natural explanation. You can shoot down this particular explanation, and instead of believing that there's going to be a God, what they're going to do is they're going to try to come up with a more creative explanation. You see? I mean, there are very few... Well, uh, no, I can't say that. There are an awful lot of naturalists who do not believe in evolution now. They're recognizing that evolution was just... It's impossible. There's no way that it could happen. But that doesn't mean that they're becoming creationists. Because if they're going to become a creationist, they're going to have to believe that there's a God and there's a supernatural. And their philosophy has already denied that. And now they're just going to come up with another explanation rather than evolution for how we all got here. Uh, you kind of following that? Does that make sense? So you can see how that their, their naturalism and their philosophy affects their biology. It definitely affects their psychology as well. Because if there is no soul, then you can't treat a person's soul, you can't treat the inside, all you treat is behavior. And so they become behaviorists. And all their concern is trying to condition the right kind of behavior rather than changing someone from the inside out or from their soul because they don't even believe that there is a soul. So that comes from it. It definitely affects their view of law because there is no ultimate law giver. Law would be one of those changing, ebbing, flowing things, and you can naturally explain how we get all of that. Do you kind of get the idea? Their naturalism affects everything else that they do. So, when it comes to scientific naturalism, scientific naturalism is going to be led by Charles Darwin, and they are going to try to come up with some observable, measurable, by use of reason and science, they're going to try to figure out how matter uh, got here, or not, not how matter got here, but how we got to the condition of matter that is currently existing. Um, it, and it all leads to an assumption. For instance, if you were to come to the Grand Canyon, when you come to the Grand Canyon, you're going to come with an assumption. You're going to come that either there is a supernatural explanation for how all this came, or there's only a natural explanation. Well, if you come to the Grand Canyon with a naturalist mindset, you're going to look, and you're going to see this huge gap, you're going to see a little river trickling down, and you're going to say, wow, look what that water did. And, of course, it would have had to happen over billions and trillions of years, and so look what a little bit of water can do over billions and trillions of years to carve out this vast canyon. See, a naturalist is going to come up with that kind of explanation based on the assumption that there is no God or outside of source, so there must be a natural explanation for it, you see? They came with an assumption. If you come to that same Grand Canyon with a different assumption that, you know what, there is a God and what He has revealed to in His, in His Word is true. And what His Word indicates is that there aren't millions and billions and trillions of years for this river to carve out this huge thing. And so there must be another... Well, wait a second. God talks about His flood. And so instead of seeing what a little bit of water can do over a vast period of time, you start seeing what a vast amount of water can do in a very limited or short amount of time. A naturalist is going to come with a certain assumption. They're going to look at it. They're going to observe. And they're going to, with that assumption, they're going, to, they're going to come to a conclusion. And the same with a Christian who's going to come with a different pre-existing assumption. Now the problem is, is how can it be that the top of the Grand Canyon 
is higher than portions of the Colorado River over here. So in some way, they're going to have to figure out how that there's a natural explanation how that water at one point in history flowed uphill so that we can now have this huge canyon that's flowed you know, out of this. So they have some problems with where they're coming from. But you can see how that scientific naturalism is the assumption. There is no God. There's only science that we can observe. And everything around us can be explained by, by natural causes. That's where they're coming from. But there's not only scientific naturalism. Please understand that there's also theological naturalism. But I told you that not all Christians, or those who claim to be religious Christians, are biblical Christians. There are a good number of them that are actually secular humanists cloaked with a Christian name. And if you were to go to a liberal theological training center starting... Back in the 1800s with a man by the name of Julius Wellhausen. Julius Wellhausen was a German theologian. He was a German theologian who was a naturalist. And because he was a naturalist, he assumed that all there is is nature. And therefore, there must be a natural explanation for how we have the Bible. There is no inspiration, there is no God, there is no Holy Spirit. So how did all this come about? And so they come up with theories, such as the JEDP theory, where... Through that, they look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and since they don't believe that God truly would have uh, given us, there is no God, they come up with a natural explanation how that the first authors, they used the name Jehovah. And then other authors came later and they added the name Elohim. And there are others who came later and the JEDP theory talks about the different stages of development or evolution of the scriptures. They apply the same to Isaiah. Because a naturalist, a theological naturalist, is going to deny the miraculous. He's going to deny any kind of supernatural action. And so he's going to explain how all of these things were myths that were created together in God's Word. That essentially is what happens to those that we call liberals. Uh, A liberal is not someone who dresses differently than a conservative, not when it comes to theology. A theological liberal is someone who is really, he's an atheist who is now still trying to hold on to some sort of religion. And so you would have theological liberals that are now filling Methodist churches as well as Methodist uh, seminaries and training centers. Liberalism dominates Presbyterians, including early seminaries that were at one time good. Uh, Unitarians, I can't. I don't think I could even link them into this because I think that's a little bit more on the New Age side of things, probably. But you could go on and on. Some of you have been in liberal churches in the past, and you wonder how how do they get to all all of this place where they are? Well, they don't come out and tell you that they're naturalists and that they don't believe that there's a God, because if you, if they did that, you're not going to come to their church. I mean. W- no one can come right out and tell you that because that's not a good way to have people in your church or to have an offering. And so instead, they're going to have to have some sort of form of piety. But what does it reflect? Eventually, you get down into ethics and you start wondering, okay, who tells what is right and wrong? Who defines marriage? Who says that homosexuality is absolutely against God's way? Well, their ethics are going to tell you and they're going to betray the fact that they are naturalists. Because they don't really believe that God has given His Word and therefore they don't think that it's authoritative and therefore they think that whatever it says about homosexuality doesn't really matter. And so that's how you get into where the Episcopal Church is on homosexuality and the ordination of homosexuals. That's how you get to where the Methodists are regarding marriage and homosexuality and and immorality and all that different stuff. 
the liberal church's practice is betraying what they are actually believing. And it all went back to theological naturalism that started with Julius Wellhausen in Germany. And the German liberals have now transplanted over to America and many American seminaries that once were teaching biblical conservative Christianity are now teaching secular humanism. Colleges such as Harvard, Princeton, Union uh, Seminary, and you could just go on and on. And I wish it was just limited to them, but it, it continues further and further. That's why my warning is to any of our young people, watch out, even when you go to a quote-unquote Christian school, Lutheran as an example, I had a good friend in high school, man, we prayed together for his dad's salvation, we got together every morning and prayed, had some devotions together before school, he decided he, went, he went, wanted to go off to a Christian school, so he went to Augustana College in South Dakota, North Dakota maybe, it was one of the Dakotas, he went off to this, uh, he went off to this Lutheran Christian school. He, he wasn't even there a full semester before he was taking philosophy classes that were promoting naturalism and destroying his faith. And soon now, he is, he's an atheist. He doesn't even believe in the Creator. And he's gone on and gotten his doctorate and is, you know, has something to do with CU. And he's been really accomplished as far as what the world's idea is. But he went off to a Christian school thinking he's going to be taught Christianity. And instead he goes to a Christian school that is teaching humanism. And they just torpedoed his faith because in philosophy class they were teaching naturalism. There's scientific naturalism. There's theological naturalism. I uh, told you that there's also psychological naturalism. Since there's no soul, there's only matter. And so it, it affects even down into that. And you get the idea. Do you understand naturalism as I have uh, related it to you? I'm not asking if you know all the ins and the outs, but you get the idea of what we've talked about. Anytime you have philosophy, you're going to study ontology, which is what is real? What is the, what's the nature of being? What is reality? That's ontology. Epistemology is... How do I know that? What's the system of knowledge to know what is real? And then there'll be a cosmology, where is how the world got here, the origin of things. And so they're all going to come up with it. Naturalism says that matter is what is real. We know that through reason and through science. And uh, therefore, you come up with uh, evolution as one of their theories. That's kind of how it happens. Any questions? Any corrections? Because I'm certainly open to that as well. I'm not the guru on philosophy. Let me just tell you that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, my answer would be based on First John. He went out from us because he was not of us. I don't believe that he ever really had embraced it. Now, the faith that had started and work, began working in him, you know, that could have been nurtured along and he could have continued to grow and may, may have come to saving faith. But instead, you take this seed that had sprung up and now you just squash it. And essentially what happened is you have the devil coming in and stealing away the seed and, and making sure that it doesn't have a chance to grow and become fruitful. So I don't believe that my friend is, is a Christian or ever was a Christian. But I still place an awful lot of the blame and the responsibility upon 
upon counterfeits, wolves in sheep's clothing, who instead of teaching a Bible standpoint, they came in and they just, they just secularized them. They just taught humanism. The point is, is that even some of our kids, who we believe have made a profession of faith and are growing, then we send them off to some place where they're going to be, to be blasted with this kind of stuff, in and out from a, from a professor, someone that we've been telling them that they should be respectful toward all as they're growing up, and now they have all those advantages. We just need to be careful. We need to be very careful that we don't send them in unprepared. Uh, let me ask. We've got college students that are here. Uh, have gone off to Those of you who have gone to different college courses, have you run into any form of naturalism within your college course as far as what they're teaching? Steve, are you saying yes? Uh, you're saying yes? You've run into it? Mr. Brackett in the back, have you run into that? So the point is, is don't be surprised. Pikes Peak Community College is not innocent because it's named after a nice mountain. Okay, Pikes Peak Community College, if they take a philosophy class, they're not going to get a biblical Christian philosophy teaching. They're going to get something else and probably naturalism will be the foundation. So we, if the kids are going to go to Pikes Peak Community College, then they need to be prepared ahead of time so that they hear it, they're not caught off guard by it, and they know what they believe even before they face it. At Georgia Tech, is that kind of? Did you, did you run into naturalism? Georgia Tech, I ran into naturalism all through uh, through high school. I mean, I just remember it was everywhere. That was just their assumption. That was the philosophy. That's what they accepted. That's what they promoted. And it was illegal to promote anything else. That's kind of how it is. Yes, Mark. One uh, of the the ways that this book is promoted is by pretending the. Uh, Good point. When you get into cosmology, you're not talking about something that is observable or reproducible or measurable. So it's all ideas. It's all going to be an assumption. It's all going to be a, a, a belief system. So by science, we're not talking about science as getting back to their origin. What they're saying is since everything is matter, the only way for us to really gain knowledge of material in a material world is through the scientific process. And to be honest with you, they have stolen science to where we are thinking, oh, science is bad. No. We're going to come back in just a moment and talk about biblical Christianity and supernaturalism that we believe in tells us that there is an ordered creation that God has given and because there is order and not chaos, because there are laws, scientific laws, rather than just randomness, there is science that can be used so that we can understand God's creation. And the very first scientists were not naturalists in their philosophy. They were biblical Christians in their philosophy. And, their, and, and that drove them in their science to understand what God's created. We really need Christian scientists. We need your kids to grow up to be uh, biologists and, and geologists and DNA, you know, molecular biologists, all the different things. We need them because they are going to be the best scientists in a ordered, structured, created universe. They're going to be able to discover the, the right solutions. So we're not saying science is bad. We're just saying that these people think that science is the only way that you can discover truth or real knowledge. And they're just gravely mistaken. All right? That's naturalism. Yes, ma'am. 
Dr. Noble said 85 to 90 percent of the kids we send to college will lose their Christianity the first year. That's the truth. And this is one of the reasons. Where do we send our kids to become these biologists? Yeah. Uh, Off to humanistic. Where do you go instead? There are biblical Christian places. I mean, I know of one. Bob Jones University is where I went to school and they were promoting a biblical Christian worldview. And there are others. There are few and far between. It needs to be examined. But they could go there and they can get pre-med and then go off into medicine. They can get pre-law and be prepared to go off into law school. They can get all those different things and go off and, and be successful in all kinds of different areas. But you know what? I had no idea that our time's away. Please hold on quickly. Because dialectical materialism is the other thing we need to talk about. All right? Dialectical materialism is going to be very similar to naturalism. Why? Because they both start with atheism. And then everything else that comes down here, they're, they're very closely related. Dialectical materialism is going to assume that matter is all that, is, that exists. They think that matter is eternal. It's the only thing that is eternal. We believe God is eternal and created matter. Out of, you know, He created this world out of nothing. So we believe that matter is a created thing. It's temporal. They believe that matter is eternal. And they believe that matter is eternal and it continues to evolve and develop. And for them, their evolution and development is through the dialectic. The dialectical materialism is telling us that in, in so many ways they're related to naturalism, but the dialectical part of it is what separates it. Have you ever heard of this idea? If you have a thesis, then you're going to have a synthesis, something that's opposite to it. And the tension of those uh, antithesis, thank you. You're going to have a thesis, you're going to have an antithesis, which is opposite to it, and out of the tension of those will develop a synthesis. That's a triangle. And that synthesis will become your new thesis. There's going to be something that is opposed to it. It's called an antithesis. And out of the conflict between the two, they will form a new thesis. And that thesis will become your new, or your new synthesis will be, that synthesis will become your new thesis. It is going to have another antithesis. Has anyone, are you familiar with this? You know where I first ran into this idea? Uh, English class in, in, uh, in high school that they were promoting it and I always thought oh that's a really cool idea until I started to understand that really you're applying that into the whole world and they are believing not just in evolution but what they're promoting is revolution because evolution would be an idea of a consistent ongoing change their idea is through the dialectic there's going to be a conflict or a revolution and then there'll be a development and then there'll be a conflict and a development and so they would more than a smooth transition they're going to believe probably in um, oh, what are those freaks of nature kind of things what are, what, what's it happen when you have a it, it starts with the letter M Huh? Mutation. So they're going to be more impressed with mutations that develop in the, the, uh, that develop the species. They're going to see more mutations and giant leaps rather than a smooth evolution. That is also affecting their view of politics because they see that we're working towards something that's better. And by the way, their dialectical materialism is always spiraling upward. They have this great expectation and optimism that everything is going to improve. The problem is, is with mutations, do things actually improve or do they get worse? They always get worse. The problem is with the laws of nature, left to themselves, does this world keep getting better and more uh, structured or does it become more chaotic? It becomes more chaotic. Second law of thermodynamics. I mean, that's just kind of... So what they're talking about goes against the laws of everything around them, but that's what they're promoting. And they believe that that's the same with government. You have the bourgeois, you have the proletariat. 
out of that you're going to get this new communist man, socialism. I mean, that's what they see, and that's why they see revolution as being something desirable. Man, that was a very quick, gross uh, explanation and exaggeration. Very simple, but that would be the idea. There's evolution from a clash of opposing forces. Did I say anything wrong, and do you kind of get the idea? That now you have naturalism, but you just have a uh, conflicted naturalism for them. Alright, non-materialism. New Age is going to be the exact opposite. You can't say that they're supernatural because they don't really believe in a supernatural. They believe that everything is God. And since everything is God, pantheism, then nothing truly is God. And out of that, they're going to come to a non-naturalism that says, what is real is not matter. What is real is a spiritual dimension that's the ultimate reality. And the way that you know that ultimate reality is not by thinking, but by feeling. Has anyone ever heard this? Don't think, Luke. Use the force. <laughs> you know, that idea. Don't think. Feel. That is how a New Ager thinks that we come to an understanding reality. It's not through science, not through thinking, not through reason, not through observation, because ultimate reality is not matter, the things around us. Ultimate reality is the spiritual dimension by, behind it. And so the way to really gain that knowledge is through transcendental meditation, yoga, those kind of things that will help you to feel and get in touch with the fact that you are part of this whole pantheistic God that's out there. Transcendental a transcendentalist emphasizes intuitive over empirical. In other words, you don't study it, you don't, know, you don't, you don't learn it from, from observation, you just feel it. That's the intuitive part. So, that's how they come up to, with their system. And uh, then you get to supernaturalism. Supernaturalism, we believe the reason is okay. Is there anyone here that doesn't think that thinking and rationality is biblical? In Isaiah one eighteen, what does God say? Come, let us... Let us reason together. We are creating the image of God with the ability to think. Praise God for that. So we believe that there is reason and therefore science is no threat to a Christian. We expect order, not chaos. We have scientific laws and so science is not a threat to a Christian. However, since matter is not ultimate reality, since God came before matter, then ultimately, we don't just. There are some things that you can't know through reason. And the ultimate reality, being God as our Creator and knowing Him, certainly we appreciate reason because that tells us an awful lot about creation. But there's also a faith that is greater. And that faith is trusting in God's revelation. And so we believe in that the way to knowledge is by hearing from the one who is actually there. God has revealed Himself to us. We believe that there is a God. We believe that He has revealed Himself. Therefore, we have no problem with a virgin birth because God intervened in the affairs of mankind. We have no problem with miracles because God intervenes. We have no problem with prophecy. We have no problem with a prophecy from Isaiah that says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and, and it tells us about a suffering servant. We have no problem with those things being written before Christ ever came. Why? Because there is a God who supernaturally revealed those things and prophecy just proves it. You see? And so the supernaturalist believes that there is a God. He has revealed Himself. And while we do trust in reason to some extent as far as observing things around us and learning, we also understand that faith is even greater. And that faith comes by trusting in God and in His Word. And that is where ultimate knowledge comes. And that's why I love your law. 
I love your law because through it I am wiser than my teachers. Through your law I am wiser than any of the ancients. Because their experience can't measure at all to what God has given to us through His Word. And again, that was a very, very uh, short explanation of it. But that's where we are. Now, here's the ultimate question that comes for a supernaturalist, a Christian. Can God's Word be trusted? I'm not going to even take the time to answer it today. But that is the ultimate question for a supernaturalist. Can God's Word be trusted? Is it reliable? And for those of us who are here, we do believe that it's reliable. And there are others who have gone through and asked that question. I would commend to you Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict. It's mostly for a Christian. This will not convince a naturalist to become a supernaturalist generally. But this will be a helpful tool for a Christian who is confused to understand that there are good reasons to trust the Bible and God's revelation to us. And so this is a really good tool that I commend to you. And, uh, and that gives you an idea. That philosophy is now going to affect our ethics. And next week... Oh, wait, it's not just ethics. Next week we're talking about biology. So next week we're going to be talking biology. We're not going straight down through the, this chart. But Mark uh, Krauss is going to talk to us about biology. He has some scientific background and things. And so he'll be able to talk about, uh, based on our theology, based on this philosophy, how does that work out when it comes to creation, evolution. He'll talk more in detail about some of the things that I basically have tried to introduce today. All right? Any other questions? Any last questions about... Man, I'm sorry that the time went so fast. Wow. Four easy chapters. They are not hard reading in this book. Four easy chapters on philosophy. And you and your family are going to be well on your way to understanding the times in which we live, what's going on around us, what's being taught and promoted, what is happening in the movies where we go, so that you understand the times and now can know what we ought to do and what a problem might be with, you know, with... Star Wars. I mean, I'm not saying don't watch Star Wars. I'm saying if you're going to watch Star Wars, you certainly ought to understand the ideas that are in there and your kids ought to understand them. You ought to be able to talk about them and reject lies and accept the truth. Right? Well, all right. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer and then we uh, can catch our breath for a minute before the service begins. Jim Woolsey, would you please close us in prayer?